Um, the <laughs> I, I might would have listened. You never know. <laughs> but uh, last week, uh, Pastor Shane, he preached on uh, verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 of Ephesians, which is a great passage to preach from. It launched the uh, Reformation in Europe. And uh, it's really, it's exciting to think the change that took place in the church as a result of that doctrine being re-spoken again, that we're saved by grace, not by works, not by paying indulgence. You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't buy your way out of purgatory. Um, you're saved by grace. And in the German translation that he wrote, he said you're saved by grace alone, not by works. And that's, that's Martin Luther. That, that's not in the Greek. That's, just, that's, uh, that's his interpretation. And, and it's so true. We are, we are saved by grace alone, but we have to, we have to work, though, afterwards. Amen. You know, we're sort of, theologically, we're sort of divided among evangelicals in between eternal security and internal insecurity, uh, where some people feel like you can do whatever you want to, you're still going to be saved, and others, you know, as soon as you commit one sin, that's it, you've got to get saved all over again. And I've met people like that from both extremes. And... And both extremes are equally wrong. And what I want to point out today is what, uh, what Pastor Shane preached last week was Christianity 101. That's the beginning. Today, you're going to get Christianity 201. It's the next step. Where do you go from here? What do you, what do, you do after you get saved? Well, some people do a disappearing act. Uh, <laughs> Which is really unusual, you know, because if, if you have a life-changing experience, why would you want to leave it? So I, I had to come to the conclusion that, well, maybe, uh, maybe you were kind of reacting to, a, to the moment or uh, maybe you're trying to impress your, your friends. I don't know what, what the reason is. I'm sure there's all kinds of reasons. But what we're talking about today is uh, what real Christianity means after we get saved. And, and what Paul focuses on is the unity within the body of Christ, that he's brought the Gentile community in together with the Jewish community, and that there's no longer any separation between the two, but now the two make up one part of, a, of the kingdom of God. So the two things we're going to talk about, the kingdom of God and also the unity of the church. Now, as you see in the video, there's a lot of suffering and pain taking place. Okay, there, there are people in here in this congregation. There are some of you who've experienced some really heart-wrenching uh, things in your life. And you may have come to a point in your life where you felt like tossing in a towel. And you said, I'm, I'm going to give up. But the purpose of unity is not so you could have just a cohesive organization. If that's all you're looking for, then there's all kinds of social clubs in the world today. In fact, you don't even have to join a club. You just have to go online and, and be part of something. But in the church, you're not part of an organization. You're part of a family. And healing comes when, uh, when, people, when the people of God get together and surround the individual with love. You know, God, when, when, he, when he created us, he knew what he was doing. Um, and within our own bodies, we have a tremendous capacity to heal our own selves. 
and you have a antibody system in your life or in your body right now where when viruses attack your body, these uh, antibodies go into high gear. And they surround the virus and they literally digest it. And protecting the whole body from getting, uh, uh, from being diseased. And so that's what we're going to talk about is how unity affects healing in the body of Christ and how that healing process is what God is using to build the body. So I'm going to begin with verse 11. Now I've gotten more compliments on my glasses this morning than I had with any other pair of glasses I had. And I'm going to tell you right now, these are cheap Walmart glasses that I bought just before I came here because I broke my regular glasses last night while I was reading my notes. I was, you know, I, I put my glasses up here like that. I was sitting on the back porch and I sort of leaned back and my glasses fell off <laughs> and broke. How can these things break? They're expensive. You know, they're not supposed to break. So I'm walking around this morning with one lens out and one in and, and I'm driving to church on my way this morning. I'm starting to get a headache and I stopped at the CVS and they're closed. I went down to the uh, Walgreens, and they were closed. I said, man, that Walmart better be open. <laughs> and fortunately, it is. So I can see what I'm doing uh, and hopefully know what I'm talking about at the same time. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would touch people's lives, people who are hurting, people who need a word from you this morning. I just commit myself over to you to ask for your anointing for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body by human hands, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the banner or the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create within himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are afar off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, who are also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you who were, uh, uh, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Jesus, when he had shared his last supper with his disciples, when he 
introduced this new covenant. He said, I'm giving you a new commandment, a new testament. And in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, Paul, or, or the author rather, outlines that God has done away with the old covenant. He's done away with the sacrifices. He's done away with the temple. He's done away with all of the other rules and regulations that people sort of came up with over a period of time. He said, all of those things are done away with. All of those things was just a shadow of what was to come. Right. And all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, and he said, here am I. I have come to do your will. And he set aside the first to establish the second. And by this, uh, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, that term once for all is used a couple times in chapter 10 in Hebrews. Christ, when he died, he died for all men, for all time, for all sins, and all women too. Okay, I don't, I don't want to leave anybody out. So it's, it's all covered under one sacrifice. Now, as I said before, there are some who believe in eternal security to the extreme and others internal insecurity. Uh, yes, when you sin, you, do, you still need to repent. You still need to come to God. But John tells us that we have an advocate with the Father. Yes. He is our high priest. I don't have to go to a priest who has his own problems, who has his own flaws, who has to sacrifice for his own self before he can do it for someone else. I have one who has made the ultimate sacrifice himself, and that's Jesus Christ. There is no longer a chosen few, but the appeal has become universal to anyone who, uh, as the Bible says, whosoever will. Anyone who wants to give his life to Jesus Christ it makes no matter who you are, what you are, what you did. As, uh, as Pastor Shane pointed out in discussing uh, Nikki Cruz uh, being told by David Wilkerson, you can cut my body up into a thousand pieces and they'll all say I love you. God is not concerned about who, who you are, what you did. He's simply coming. It's like, like Samuel told Saul. God doesn't care about your sacrifices. He wants an obedient heart. He wants somebody who will do what God has commanded him to do. And that's what God is looking for you. And this is why uh, we'll get into this in a minute. And later on in a few weeks, you will, you will hear a sermon on the armor of God. And I'm, I'm just going to touch on that for a moment, but not right now. Uh, we must realize that what God is doing here is he, is, he has a goal in mind. And he is using unity to achieve that purpose. And that purpose is to build up the kingdom. Now, when I talk about building up the kingdom, we're not talking about a geographical location. We're talking about a body of people that exist throughout the entire world. You know, uh, I believe it was last month, uh, Pastor Shane was talking about how the church is in decline. And yet, church attendance is declined. There are some places where it's actually increasing. But as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about that, uh, what Pastor Shane said. And you may not agree with this, but that's okay. I'm just expressing an opinion here. It is true that church attendance is declining. It is also irrelevant. And I'll tell you why. Because God's not interested in our numbers. 
God's not interested in filling our churches with people. He's interested in filling people with himself. I said that at the end of the lesson, but I'm going to do it this time here. <laughs> God is wanting people to be filled with himself. He'll fill the buildings. He'll fill the stadiums. So I'm not worried about church attendance declining. Now, the upside to that is that even though the church attendance is down, there's still percentage-wise still about the same percentage of people that still believe in God. There are people who still believe that there is an afterlife. There are still people who believe that there is a higher power. However they articulate that or formulate that into their mind, the point is that you cannot get rid of God through any kind of philosophy. You cannot legislate God out of anything. God will always be there bugging you and bugging others. <clears throat> and the church, in whatever form that it takes, will always be part of that kingdom. And it is a kingdom that is a place, I guess you could, another word you could call it is a spiritual hospital where people can come and still find healing, where they can f still find a relationship with their creator, who can still find people who will love them, who will embrace them, who will not hold their past sins against them, but will accept them not for what they are, but in spite of what they are. Because that's the way God looks at us. So how, does, how do we define unity? I have to go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 through 15. Uh, I always like to define my terms. Uh, I think it gives us better, a better understanding of, of what's being said, what we're talking about. But how does the Bible define unity? And why is unity so important? And you find that answer, I, I believe, is in Colossians. I mean, yes, Colossians chapter 3. Starting at verse 13, bear with one another and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against each other, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these things, uh, put on vir uh, virtue. Above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Now, um, let's look at this. Uh, I'm going to break it down into four pieces. First is, Paul is saying, have, have a forgiving heart. Yeah. Okay. Well, how do you do that? What is it to have a real forgiving heart? Well, let's look at what it is not. Let's look at unforgiveness. Have you ever dealt with unforgiveness in your heart? Yeah. Well, if you haven't, you're lying. <laughs> we've, we've all had that. And, and as I pointed out in the, uh, in this morning, is that if you're in the ministry, you've been a target. Okay? And as I, as I said before, Edna and I, we, uh, we've worked together a lot with people who really have some real issues in their lives. And it seems that the people who we invested the most time and money and also provided the greatest disappointments. And some have even uh, attempted to do things to us that were wrong, that were bad. Uh, in other words, stab us in the back. So how do you forgive in those situations? 
How do you forgive what someone has done to you? They're unrepentant. In fact, they think what they did was the right thing to do. How do you forgive that? How do you overcome the bitterness, the anger, the resentment that follows the revelation that you've been had or you've been hurt or you've been disappointed in a great way? And I'm going to tell you, it's not easy. Now, you can get up in front of people and you say, oh, yeah, I forgive you. Yeah, you can say that, but what's really going on here? How do you know you haven't forgiven somebody? Well, I think one way you can know is you, you, you're always thinking about it. You're thinking about that person. But the reality of it is, when you have unforgiveness in your heart, you've done something very dangerous. You've placed yourself above God. You're reserving for yourself something that God doesn't even reserve for himself. And that's a very dangerous place to be in. Because once you place yourself above God in a situation like this, you open your life up to bitterness, resentment, anxiety, depression. Depression is the result of these things working together in your life. And depression is debilitating. Now, I've dealt with people who've, who've had depression to the point where they can't even get out of bed in the morning. And their house is just a mess. I remember we had, a, we had one family in our church. Uh, my daughter, Crystal, went over to help clean up the house, and she just was dumbfounded. Didn't know where to begin. It was just, she tried to clean up a little bit in the kitchen, but it didn't matter because the next week it was a mess again. And I, and I sat down, with, it was the wife that was having problems with depression, and so I sat down with the husband, and, you know, I, I, I believe... Uh, I believe in medicine. I believe in psychotherapy, uh, uh, if it's Christ-centered. And so I, I sat down with him and I said, give me a list of all the uh, medications that she's on. All of them are designed to have some kind of an antidepressant effect on her. And there was 14 different medications. And we had, a, we had a lady in our church who was a pharmacist, and I said, I want you to take this list to Jane and have her look at it. And she just looked at it and said, she's over-medicated. She's way over-medicated. And I said, you need to get a second opinion on this. And so uh, they went to another doctor. He cut half of those medications out completely. She began to improve. You see, sometimes even a psychiatrist with all of their education, and I believe in psychiatrists. I have friends that are psychiatrists. But sometimes they don't have the answer except the pill. Jesus provides that answer. Jesus provides the answer for unforgiveness. How do, I get go- how do I get to that point where I no longer have that unforgiveness in my heart? Uh, how do I genuinely forgive from the heart? Just like uh, the Bible says, to love one another deeply from the heart. How do you forgive uh, deeply from your own heart? That takes us to step two. That's to love one another. Now, I visited uh, Nyack Missionary College. At the time, it was called Missionary College. Now, it's just Nyack College. And they had a Christian psychiatrist who was the guest speaker at this missionary, uh, not missionary, but spiritual life conference. And he defined love in a very simple, straightforward manner. He said, love is the capacity to make a faith commitment to another person. 
Now, when you think about that, that's, that's a mouthful. There's a lot involved there. He's saying, see, we say, uh, you know, we say this to each other, I love you, you know, and all that, and, and it's all nice and it's all sweet and, you know, and makes you feel good inside. But that's, that's all well and good. But to really love someone, you have to be able to commit yourself to that person's welfare. You have to say, I'm going to be, I'm with you. I'm going to love you regardless of what it is that you've done. I'm, I'm going to love you regardless of what you've done to me. Okay. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to, I'm going to hope the best for you. I don't want to see you get hurt. I don't want to see, I'm not going to take revenge on you, and I'm not going to rejoice if things go bad for you. But I will rejoice when things go good for you. Now, I was talking about a friend of mine, a person in my church who really bent over backwards to try to get rid of me. Um, and, and he and his wife were just, uh, blatant gossips and and the gossip was beginning to take hold in the church and uh, eventually uh, he and his wife you know they left the church and things kind of smoothed out we got it all taken care of but uh, I did find out later on that when he and his wife went back to the States they got stationed at Fort Walton Beach and we had some former members there and there's this one lady, she, was, she and her husband were stationed uh, there and went to our church, and he couldn't stand her. And he couldn't stand it because she was so exuberant. She was our worship leader. And she was just a very straightforward, very demonstrative type of individual. And his wife was convinced she was demon-possessed. Now, I know for a fact she wasn't. It was just, there was just personality clashes. Well, when my friend got stationed at Fort Walton Beach, who do you think he visited first? The worship leader for the purpose of telling me how bad I am. <laughs> and I talked to her later on. She said, you know, God just spoke to me. He said, just ignore this. You know, I'm still looking for this guy. <laughs> I don't know what's happened to him. But I'm not looking for him for the purpose you might think. I've been scouring Facebook and can't find this guy. Uh, I don't know what's happened to him. So how do you forgive someone who you can't go up to physically and say, I forgive you, I love you, and I want to put all this behind us? You may not have that chance to do that. And so it gets hard to really forgive someone who has kind of left you. And there's no way of reaching out to them. Well, you have to come to the realization that whatever they did to you, it's between them and God. And I'm thinking about David when he committed his sin against Bathsheba. In Psalms 51, he said, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And I thought, that's, that's quite profound. I said, you've, you've done some really bad stuff. <laughs> and you're saying, it's you and against you only have I sinned? You see, David was looking at something much deeper than just the circumstances there. Yes, the sin against God was more grievous than the sin that he committed against uh, anybody uh, in that situation. And so he needed forgiveness. Now, whoever sins against you, that person needs forgiveness. That person is a child of God. Right. That person is the individual who Jesus died for. Amen. 
that is the person who you say, if, if I ever see this guy again, I'm going to want the best for that person's life. And I want to be reconciled to that person, even if he, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> this is what it means to really love one another, is to commit yourself to one another. This is what brings healing into the church. Statistically, most people who join the Jehovah Witnesses organization are evangelicals who've been hurt in the church. Because somebody said something, somebody did something, whether it be a member of the church or the pastor of the church, it doesn't matter how or why or what the situation was, that person, rightly or wrongly, was hurt. And they left the church. And the church did not pursue him or her. Someone once said that the rise of the cults are the unpaid bills of the Christian church. If people join the cults, it is because the church is not meeting the need. And so we have to love one another because God is building a kingdom of people who are committed, who are dedicated, who are willing to lay down their lives to pay the full price. Now, thirdly, what is necessary, in order to forgive, in order to love, you have to have the third element working in your life. This is, this is the keystone for me. Allow Christ's uh, peace to rule in your life, to rule in your heart. What, is, what does that mean? How many of you, you've experienced the peace of God? Okay. How many of you have experienced the peace of God that passes all understanding? All right. How do you get to that point? Peace comes after the war. You don't put on the armor of God just to look pretty. You put on the armor of God because you're going to go into battle. And if you're not willing to go into battle, you will never know the peace of God that passes understanding. You will forever be a POW. You will be Satan's prisoner as long as you allow him to rule in your life and allow the fruits of the flesh like bitterness, anger, resentment to take a hold of your life, create depression. What Satan wants to do is the opposite of what God wants. God wants you to be effective. Yeah. Satan wants you to be ineffective. And if he has to lead you to a point of depression where you can't get out of bed in the morning, he's happy to do it. Because an effective Christian is a Christian that's going to multiply seed. That's right. <clears throat> I talked about uh, what, I, what my takeaway is from my five years here in, uh, in North Carolina. Hadn't preached much, taught a few classes, uh, been quiet mostly, uh, sometimes. <laughs> Not all the time. I think about what, what is a rock. I'm not talking about some little pebble on the ground or some, uh, you know, thing you can hold. I'm talking about some rock that's sticking out of a cliff that probably weighs a few tons. It's hard. It's immovable. The weather doesn't affect it. In New Hampshire, there's a place called uh, the Old Man in the Mountain. There's a profile of a man's face. 
It's not there anymore. Uh, what happened one winter was it rained real hard and the water got into the cracks and crevices and then it froze. And that ice, as you know, ice expands and it totally destroyed the profile of the old man in the mountain. It's not there anymore. One of the great, the symbol of New Hampshire on their license plate was the old man in the mountain and he's not there anymore. He died all because of a few drops of rain. You see, that's what happens when we let things get into our lives. They embed themselves and they destroy us. They destroy the life that God has intended for you to live. He's destroyed or it destroys the effectiveness that you could have. And that's why Jesus called Simon Peter. Because the word Peter means rock. Because even though he was a loud mouth and usually he's always said the wrong thing and was impetuous, he knew that he would embody eventually those characteristics of a rock. That's right. That he would be strong. He would be immovable. He would be dependable. He would always be there. Not having cracks and crevices in his life where Satan can get in and destroy and tear apart. And lastly, he says, be thankful. And then for all things, give thanks. For this is the will of God for your life. You know, sometimes young people in youth groups and things like that, they, they struggle with this concept of what is the will of God for my life. And they make the mistake of associating God's will with some kind of a career or marriage choice. Now, that, the will of God embodies those things, but those, those are peripheral things. As important as you may think they are, God is, God's will for your life is much, goes much deeper. It says to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Jesus said uh, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your, your strength, and to love one another as you love yourself. Jesus isn't saying anything new. He's quoting from the Old Testament. The will of God is to be thankful for all things. Now, I'm not minimizing you know, who you, who you get married to or what job you get or what ministry you go into, those, those things. God will, you know, funny thing about God. <laughs> uh, you know, if you love God, you don't have to worry about the will of God. You're going to end up doing it anyway. You can't help it. You can't help it. You'll always do the will of God if that is your priority in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you won't make mistakes doesn't mean you won't go off on some tangent somewhere. But I believe that God always brings us back. Yeah. Always refocuses our attention. I was uh, uh, watching my grandson. He was playing soccer uh, last week. He's three years old. Uh, he, you know, he runs out into the field and he goes, my teammates, my teammates. You know, he's all excited about playing again. Well, eventually he gets tired of playing that game. He goes over to the next field and starts playing that game. <laughs> And, and my son, his father, goes running after him. And he's running all over the place trying to get a, hold of his, uh, get a hold of my grandson so he can get him back into the game and get him refocused again. Right. And I think we act like that sometimes with God. You know, we, we run all over the place thinking we're doing something great when God wants to pull you back and say, look, look, this is, this is where you belong. You, you don't belong over there. You belong right here. Right. 
Okay, you get your focus back. So when I think about being thankful, I'm thankful not for the bad things that happened in my life, but I'm thankful for, what they, for the effect that they have on my life. Now, uh, those of you who followed my life these past five years, you know, I've, I've been through a lot uh, physically. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, there are times when I felt like, uh, you know, I'm tired of this. You know, I never felt like giving up or anything like that, but I was tired of it. You know, and, and I was, uh, there were times when I just didn't have that peace, I didn't have that joy because, uh, you know, when you can't do simple things, you know, like walking. Uh, you know, when you walk, if you don't have any disabilities, when you're walking, you're not thinking about all the muscles and the tendons and the decisions your brain is making just in your feet. You know, because it's all, it's all instinctive. It's all natural. You don't think about it. But when you have to think about every step uh, and not falling over, then that gets tedious after a while. But... Thankfully, to, through people's prayers and encouragement, uh, I walked into a nurse practitioner's office, had an appointment with her, and she said, do you want me to order a scooter? You know, one of the little motorized things, you know, that run you over in the grocery store. <laughs> uh, I said, no, I'm going to walk again. That's right. Amen. So... So I wheeled myself out of the office and I just said goodbye. That was the last time I saw her. And, uh, but all of this is for one purpose, and that's to build a kingdom. Amen. Now, you build a kingdom through one simple concept. It's called evangelism. That's it. What is evangelism? How does the Bible define evangelism? And that goes with the definition for the kingdom. In John chapter 12, verse 31 through 33, he says, now, now is the time of judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world has been driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. And he said this to show what kind of death that he was going to die. Now this applies not only to the crucifixion, but it applies to your life right now. It applies to, if we lift up Jesus... Now, people have been burning Bibles. They've been banning Christians. They've banned prayer. You know, we faced it all. We're still here. We're still walking. The church has never been crippled to the point where it could not proceed forward. We may get some setbacks. We may get some hostility. But like I said, you will not know the peace of God unless you're willing to fight the battle. Peace comes after the battle. Victory comes at the end of the battle. And you're either a victor or you're a POW. And you choose which one you're going to be. You don't put on the armor of God, as I said, so you can look nice, so you can look pretty, so you can make it an impression. You put on the armor of God so you can be equipped to fight the battle. Then you'll know the peace of God. I think... uh, the best definition for evangelism is actually in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, to release from darkness, uh, and release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for them, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of, of praise instead of the spirit of despair. And they will be called the oaks of righteousness, yes. a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You see, that's what evangelism is, to bind up the brokenhearted, yes. to comfort those who mourn, to love those who are unlovely, to accept those who are rejected by society, where they could find the place here where they can be healed, not only physically, but also spiritually as well. But we have to be the people who are equipped to do that. We are not some social organization out there just doing good things. We are a body of people who are united for one purpose, and that is to build up a kingdom for God because that kingdom eventually is going to make its way back here. As I said before, God doesn't want us to fill our churches with people. He wants us to fill people with the Spirit of God. He will fill the building. He will fill the stadiums. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and in a moment, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Pastor Shane. When I went to that spiritual life conference in Nyack, uh, one night uh, we had a service. And there was a young, young girl, there, about 18, 19 years old. She had gotten saved, had, lived a, had been involved in witchcraft and the occult. And... She sang a solo, uh, and this solo is entitled, And Can It Be? Do you know, Brother Tom? Uh, I was telling the church earlier this morning, we had to sing this at our graduation because it was the president's favorite hymn. But when I heard this young girl sing this song for the first time, I was impressed. Because Charles Wesley wrote this hymn shortly after he got saved. And it was expressing his feelings at that time. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read verse 4 because I found verse 4 to really hit home with me. Long, <clears throat> long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
you who filled our dungeon with light. and gave us a purpose. And gave us meaning. And you gave us eternal life. We thank you that your spirit inhabits our hearts, our minds, and our praises. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would now inhabit this place and fill all of us with your spirit. Father, I believe that there are people here who are hiding the brokenness in their lives and are putting on a good show. And Father, I pray that you would break the facade and you would give us a revelation of ourselves as we really are and cause us to be honest and repent and allow your spirit to do the work that needs to be done. We give you thanks. Father, I turn this congregation over to you. I thank you that you have chosen me for this time but I give it over to you. And I pray now that your spirit would touch people at their point of need. In Jesus' name, amen. I got it. What a great and important word for us. All of us have been wounded because of broken things that have happened to us. Wounded by friends, wounded by our spouses, wounded by people in our church. But Christ's coming, and the text we read says it's all about bringing the two together that there used to be brokenness between. That I have made the two one. Scripture says, I have broken down. That word means to abolish the dividing wall of hostility. And yet sometimes as the church, we maintain these spaces of hostility instead of seeking the work of reconciliation, of peace, and new life. Today, Pastor Bill has very powerfully spoken what it looks like for us to cross the road, so to speak, to be this body that calls, God has called us to. And that is through his love, through forgiveness, through thanksgiving, and letting Christ be Lord. When we live that way, everything comes together the way that it should. If God has broken down the hostility, then my question for you is, as we bring this to a close today, why is it, are your walls of hostility still up? Why is it that you still harbor unforgiveness? Why is it that the wound of things that have even happened to you decades ago still forward their way into your life now? Or the things that have happened last week? You see, for the believer, those things are to be released. 
some years ago, was traveling with a team on a missions trip to Cleveland, Ohio. We had chosen a church to work with that was right across the street from the community where we wanted to minister. When we called the church, we asked them some questions about the community that was right across the street. And they said, we don't know anything about them. We won't go there. I said, well, if you won't go there, will you help us go there? And they said, sure. We came in and we started ministering at the church. We did some training and we were able to get one member from that church that had been there for 50 years to go with us. We held a service. The power of God moved in a very radical way. And a woman said to us, I have lived here for 12 years and no one once has told me about Jesus and God's love. And I think about that distance and I thought, what an indictment upon that church. But then I thought, what an indictment that is upon me. How many times have I not crossed the street to bring healing? How many times have I failed to offer forgiveness? How many times have I participated more in the brokenness that's going on in the world than it's healing? It's heartbreaking that a church that was right across the street wouldn't cross it. But just as heartbreaking that the only distance is picking up the phone. If God has broken down the wall of hostility, the question then is why won't we? And that's what's available for us right now is we are living in such brokenness because the sign of the kingdom of God, it's in breaking, is that we would love one another. And that's what God's called us to do as a community here, yes, this morning, but as a community that's taking the word of God out into the world. To take the word of God across the living room. To take the word of God to our next-door neighbor. This is what God has called us to do, to break down the wall of hostility that he has already broken down by removing it from our own hearts. Spirit of the living God, we pray and ask for your help here today. Because, Lord, though we want to be a people of forgiveness, we confess that sometimes it's easier to harbor unforgiveness it's easier to stay distant because we're afraid that we'll be wounded yet again. And to love means to be vulnerable, Lord, and to be vulnerable means to live under the threat that we can be wounded again and again and again. But I'm reminded, Lord, through your word that says that you, though, were wounded for our sin, not just for the sin that we committed in the past tense, but the sins we're committing even now and the ones that we're still going to commit, but you were wounded in that and so that we can offer it to others. So I pray that powerfully that this word would impact our hearts and we wouldn't be the church that refuses to cross the street or the spouse that won't offer the word of love. That we, God, would live differently into the purposes that you have called us and designed us for. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would seal this moment with your grace. 
with every head bowed. Join Pastor Shane of Covenant Life Church.
Amen. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to all of you that have really put out trying to help us get all packed up and ready to go. And, uh, and Yvonne even uh, uh, has done an excellent job as our realtor. And I was thinking back, you know, when we were packing up, up the trailer and the truck and everything. And, uh, you know, I was kind of worried, you know, the truck's kind of old. It's got 180,000 miles on it. And uh, so I was a little concerned, you know, so I had about like a gallon of oil that I took with me, plus some antifreeze. I was going to make sure I had everything right. And um, as I was driving down the road, um, you know, I was thinking about all of you and, and all the work that you did for us and helping us. And a question came to my mind is, how come nobody ever tried to talk me out of it? <laughs> So, uh, but I'm glad to be back, if only for a short time. And God's doing a, a, a really great work in New England. You know, you think about New England, you know, as, you know the frozen chosen and, and all that. But I want to tell you something. Um, you know, there is revival taking place in New England. You just don't hear about it because it gets ignored mostly. But every year, we, we've gone back to the church that we uh, we're at before we came here, and every year we uh, we sponsor a concert. Uh, we're located in the city of, of Haverhill, which is pronounced uh, phonetically as Haverhill. So we decided to take a ripoff from Woodstock and called it Hillstock. <laughs> and so we have this concert in, in in a park in the middle of Haverhill, where we know a lot of drug addicts and homeless people hang out. And so we've been doing this, uh, actually before we came down here, we were doing it. I was on, on the planning committee to put, the, to put this thing together. And, you know, we have all kinds of different groups that come and sing and, uh, you know, we give away bicycles and hot dogs and just about anything you can imagine. And, and it's a great time. And it's about a thousand people come out for this uh, every year. And, Last, uh, the last time we had, about, about two weeks ago, we had about 25 young people gave their life to Christ. Yeah. And so we're thankful for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was good to see Edna back at the registration table again. And uh, usually I cook the hot dogs, but I decided to take a pass on it this year. <laughs> um, but Edna was commenting, you know, the same people that we saw five years ago that hang out there, uh, you know, they're still there, still hanging out. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not being effective because uh, one of the guys from the church who'd spent 35 years on drugs himself met a guy there who had, uh, was, was one of the hangouts at the park, came to Christ, started going to church for a little while and then kind of disappeared. And so he asked, well, where have you been? He said, oh, I've been all over to this other church. You know, I moved on, good. you know, in a good way. And so the, the impact that you have, you know, it may not get the news media. The news media may ignore it because it's not important. You know, no news, good news is no news. But the impact that you have on one person not only just changes that, worse, that person's life, but has the potential of changing many people's lives. And so never minimize the work you're doing, even though it may not seem to be bearing the fruit that you would like to see. Um, 
it was uh, my daughter's 39th birthday uh, Friday. No, yesterday. Um, 39 years. That's where your kids get up there. And, <laughs> and so I went down to, um, uh, what is it called? Edible Arrangements. And I bought an, uh, an arrangement of, you know, just kind of a, a small one, you know, just for a birthday. And uh, I made sure that there were plenty of chocolate-coated strawberries on it because I know my granddaughter, Rose, when she sees that, it's like, no mercy. You know? <laughs> uh, just get out of the way. And they did not deliver what I had bought. Instead of getting the small or medium size, they gave her the big grand size. And uh, my granddaughter just tore into that. And uh, so having left here, uh, you know, there's been, I'll be honest, there's been some regrets on my part, some ambivalence on my part, um, kind of like Jonah uh, was kind of uh, hesitant to go to Nineveh. And, uh, and I was talking to a friend of mine that I knew from the Air Force down in, down in South Carolina, and I was kind of sharing with, with them, you know, some of my feelings. But I said, you know, we have to be obedient to God because you don't want to end up in a fish's stomach. <laughs> you know, because that's, that's even worse. So uh, now that doesn't mean that if I stayed here, I'd be in a fish's belly. But um, obedience to God uh, is not a matter of necessarily a matter of how it makes you feel or if a good feeling is a confirmation. Sometimes God dictates the circumstances that are seemingly adverse. And you kind of feel like Jonah. I don't want to go. I don't want to, I don't want to go back there. I like, I like my house. Uh, somebody, uh, one of our friends up there asked me if we had developed any deep relationships with anybody down here. And I said, yeah, I had a covenant relationship with my house. <laughs> and... Uh, but I'm glad to be back. And tomorrow I'm going to sign papers. The house will no longer be mine. I'll be on my way. And it'll be by the grace of God that I see you people again. Uh, hopefully I will. Now, last week, I, I believe you preached on chapter 2 in Ephesians. See, he got the, he got the, he got the lucky passage, you know, <laughs> saved by grace, you know, not by works. It is a free gift of God. Launches a reformation. Uh, in the 1500s, and, and I get uh, Jews and Gentiles being brought together. You see, what, what Shane talked about last week, I, I would call Christianity 101. That's the beginning. This is 201. Yeah. And I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. And so if you have a Bible or a laptop, uh, you might want to turn to that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask that you would take these words and use them to be a blessing to someone else. Yes. So I ask for your anointing, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Beginning at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done uh, in the body by human hands. Remember that 
at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promises, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier dividing the wall of hostility uh, by setting aside in his flesh the law, uh, setting aside the law, one new humanity out of the two, and thus making peace. And in one body, uh, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as uh, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is being joined together uh, and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus taught that the, that the temple of God is within us now. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem uh, that we have to go to and offer up sacrifices. And I think there's some historical um, ironies here when we think about the temple. If you remember your history, the temple was destroyed around 70 AD by the Romans. And they not only destroyed it, but they made sure that you wouldn't build anything there again. And it was it was completely leveled down to the down to the uh, foundation to the, to the bottom of the foundation. And since then, a temple has never been built again. And on the same spot where the temple used to stand is now a mosque. Now, there was a Byzantine emperor. And his name was called Julian the Apostate. Now, I'm not I don't remember the dates. I don't have them in front of me. But he allowed the Jews to go back into Jerusalem uh, for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And as they were beginning to rebuild the temple, there was an explosion on the construction site. Now, my theory is that since natural gas tends to leach up through the ground in that area, somebody wondered what was spelling so bad down in those caves and went down there with a torch <laughs> and found out. But this is why you see an outcropping of rock on the Temple Mount. And this is where allegedly Mohammed went up to heaven. And uh, as a result of that alleged experience, the uh, Muslims built a mosque over that area. And that's why it's called the Dome of the Rock. In my biased thinking, that God not only allowed that temple to be destroyed, but he made sure you're never going to build one there again because that's not where it's happening. 
This is where it's happening, Amen. right here. The new covenant that Christ brought into existence replaces the old covenant, the sacrifices and the rituals, and all the, uh, and all the trappings that went along with that to atone for people's sins. And in Hebrews, it tells us that those things cannot take away sins. Samuel tells Saul, God's not interested in your sacrifices. He's interested in your obedience. That's more important than those sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 through 10, uh, 9 and 10, he says, and then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will, to set aside the first, to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, I like the way that, that terminology, once for all, is used a couple of times in chapter 10. It says, Jesus died for one, one time for all sin, for all men, for all time. That's right. Your sins are forgiven. That's right. And then if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Yes. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, I don't have to go to a synagogue. I don't have to go to a temple in Jerusalem to offer up a sacrifice to atone for my sins. I don't have to rely on a priest who is probably just as bad as I am to offer up a sacrifice on my behalf. First, he has to offer one up for himself and then for the people. You don't have to do that anymore. Now, in Protestant theology, there is some division over this uh, concerning, uh, you know, our salvation. There are those that think that once you're saved, you're always saved. And then there are others that believe in conditional salvation, that you can lose your salvation. Now, both parties have elements within them that take it to the extreme. One has eternal insecurity. You can do whatever you want, and you're still saved. And then you have the opposite side, where you have eternal insecurity where no matter what you do, you, as soon as you've done it, you've lost your salvation. You've got to get saved all over again. I think both, both extremes are wrong. But there is no longer this distinction between God's chosen people and those who are outside. There is a universal appeal to recognize, or to all who recognize God's provision for salvation. Now, that's Christianity 101. Martin Luther, when he was dealing with the Catholic Church and the uh, sale of indulgences uh, and how that sort of contradicted blatantly, in fact, uh, what he was reading in Ephesians and Romans. And in fact, when he was translating Ephesians into German, he said, you are saved by grace alone. Now, that's not in the Greek. That's Martin Luther. Okay, some people have sort of objected to that a little bit, but he's emphasizing a point. You're not saved by your works, although works are important. We must realize that God is, what God is doing here is to achieve a unity that binds people together for the purpose of building up his kingdom. Now, there are two words that I want you to focus on that Paul is talking about at Ephesians in this passage, and that is the kingdom and unity. And these two are interrelated. They're, they are not mutually exclusive ideas or concepts. Amen. 
They have to be brought together. Now, what I like to do when I'm teaching or preaching is I like to define my terms. So I want to define to you what the Bible says, what unity is. And you have to turn to Colossians chapter, 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. This, this is really, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was trying to construct this in my mind, I, I spent a lot of time just thinking about sermons before I actually put it down on paper. Um, you know, then I'll, then I'll type it up and I'll look at it and say, you know, this really stinks. <laughs> you know, and all that thinking goes out the window. But the Lord brought this passage to me when I'm thinking about the definition of unity. I'm going to let the Bible define unity for you. It said in Colossians, it says, Bear with each other and forgive one another uh, if any has a grievance against someone else. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Uh, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. So the four things here I want to bring out. First is have a forgiving heart. Um, now, I'm sure Pastor Shane can tell you and anybody who's been in the ministry any length of time, you know that when you go into the ministry, Satan puts a target on your back. Uh, you know, not the red target that you see advertised, but you are a target. In fact, anybody who gives his life to Christ is going to be Satan's target. And a lot of bad things happen in ministry, a lot of disappointments. Now, I've noticed in my own personal ministry, and I don't know if this bears out in yours, uh, Pastor Shane, but it seems like the people who Edna and I have, have invested the most time and effort in also provided the greatest disappointment. The problem is sometimes we get focused on that one person and then we become embittered. You know, my daughter and I, we, we get into this discussion about absolutes, you know, and you, you probably know, you know, the, what they teach in school and college. There are no absolutes. And when you think about it, when you say that there are no absolutes, you're pronouncing an absolute. Right. <laughs> um, now, you can argue about absolutes till you're blue in the face and you generate a lot of heat and not a whole lot of light. But there is one absolute that you, uh, you can't get your head around, and that's forgiveness. Right. To not forgive is to place yourself above God. You're saying that, hey, God has to forgive everybody, but, you know, I don't have, I don't have to do that. Okay, I'm, I'm only human, you know. I remember back in uh, when uh, uh, Barack Obama first ran for president, he was running against uh, Hillary Clinton, and you know, and she came out with this concocted story about how when her husband was president, she went to uh, Bosnia or whatever, and uh, when they landed at the airport in Sarajevo, they came on the on the fire, and they had to dodge bullets, get in the car, and leave right away. And the people that were with that entourage said, what is she talking about? The only thing we had to dodge were the flowers that the kids were throwing at us. <laughs> you know, for two weeks, she went on with this story. Yeah, that's, that's what happened. 
And even the pilot of the plane said, if there was any danger down there, we wouldn't have landed. And so when she finally couldn't dodge it anymore, she said, I misspoke. I'm only human. That's an exact quote. And then we're supposed to forget about it. Um, maybe something like that has happened to you or somebody just really lied to you. And it, it's hard to forgive because that person really hurt you. Right. Now, what Clinton did, you know, we can slough that off. Well, that's, that's just her being her. You know, that's, that's what she does. Okay, it doesn't affect me. But when it's your close friend that hurts you, then your capacity forgiveness is tested. But when you think about what Jesus did when they raised him on the cross, he said, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right. Now, the people who are close to you, they may know what they're doing. <laughs> but spiritually, they live in ignorance. I don't care if they've been members of the church or they've been saved for years. What they do is between them and God, and they have to answer for that. Right. Our mandate is to forgive. Because there are some benefits to forgiveness. Number one, ha having a forgiving heart prevents that heart from becoming embittered and resentful. And believe me, that is an easy temptation to follow to. Because if you've been wrong, I mean, uh, you feel, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I was in the right. Yeah, you may be right, but you could end up being dead right. To place yourself above God is a very dangerous place to be. You can't do that. And so we, we have this absolute that we must forgive. And I say, well, I don't, I don't feel like forgiving. I don't feel like my heart's really in it. Well, forgive anyway and let the Holy Spirit deal with your heart. The second thing that forgiveness does is it brings reconciliation. Reconciling yourself to that individual. You may have to confront that person. That person may deny. There are people who have wronged me that uh, feel like they were doing the right thing and then they sort of left the scene and have no idea where they are. They're not on Facebook. <laughs> I've searched. <laughs> Every week. Every week I look for this guy because, you know, you get that whole list of, you know, uh, somebody you know knows this person, you know, potential friends. You know, 99% of them I don't know. <laughs> you know, I have no idea who that individual is. But that does not mean that I can't be forgiving of what that person has done because they have to deal with God in the long run. God has to work on their lives. The second thing is to, and, and this uh, doesn't even need to be repeated, is to love one another. Amen. Now, how do you define love? I mean, love, uh, Paul defines love excellently uh, in 1 Corinthians. It's good, it's kind, it's patient, it's long-suffering, and on and on and on. I'm not going to bother reading it right now. But ask yourself, how do you define love? Now, when I was in the Air Force a long time ago, um, uh, they were still flying jets then. 
um, or just beginning to. Um, I went up to uh, Nyack College up in New York, uh, sits on the Hudson River. Beautiful campus, it was built by the Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, their founder was A.B. Simpson, and he and his wife are both buried on the campus. And since then, they've changed the name from Nyack Missionary College to Nyack College, um, which has more to do with accreditation than giving up on the mission. Um, and there was a, and I happened to go there at the time when they were having their spiritual emphasis week. This was in October of 72, I think, 73, 72. And there was a, one of the guest speakers was a Christian psychiatrist. Uh, had a pra he was a Methodist, had a practice in New York City. And he was doing a talk on what love is. And he gave this definition. And he said, love is the ability to make a faith commitment to another person. Yeah. Plain and simple. Nothing elaborate, no, you know, not like Paul. Uh, just something plain and simple. Well, you think about that. What does it mean to make a faith commitment? Well, you do that when you got married, okay? But it's not restricted to marriage. When you, you, you know, you, you got a bunch of people here, you know, you hug each other, say, I love you, you know. Um, we, have a, we have a bad habit of taking tremendous truths and turning them into cliches. Um, when you say you love someone, are you really committed to that person's well-being? Um, you, you better think about that before you answer. Because it means a lot. Now, in this video that we just saw, saw people who get hurt by people who don't care. Okay, you see a lot of that. You see it in church. You see it in the workplace. You see it in your own families. But what really, what really binds people together is love, not only because it creates a sense of unity, but it also affects healing. You've got a lot of hurting people in churches. The Jehovah Witnesses gain most of their converts from evangelical Christians who have been hurt in church. That's a statistical truth. Uh, maybe somebody did something in the church or the pastor did something or said something. Uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of reasons. Uh, the problem is not who did what and was this person being overly sensitive or whatever. Uh, the issue is they got hurt, and they left. And they left to a group of people who showed genuine care and concern for them and was willing to help, help them. And that's what love really is. It's, it's a, the willingness to show genuine concern and to take the time and the effort to help them, even if it might be inconvenient for you. Now, when I was living in Italy, uh, the base newspaper there had this little segment on the back page of the paper where they highlighted an individual. And they said, what do you like most about being in Italy? What do you like least? What, what do you miss the most about the states? And consistently, what people miss most about the states is convenience. We live in a very convenience-oriented society. Um, people go to church based on convenience. Uh, what church kind of matches their worship style, right. where they feel more comfortable. Uh, 
When God called me into the ministry, he didn't allow me the liberty of being picky where I go, which has been demonstrated in the past month. Uh, but when you think about what church you go to, and do you go there because it meets your needs or because you meet its needs? Now, when a person first comes to Christ, that may be the motivation. They're meeting my needs. That's where they are in their development, just like a small child. child a baby can't help itself. You have to do it all for them. But when you get older, you start to expect some responsibility from that child. They begin to grow. They begin to mature. I know my, my son, Philip, uh, after he graduated from college, he moved back into my house. And, you know, with the economy the way it is, especially in New England, it, it's tough, you know, to get along. And, and after a while, I began to wonder, am I ever going to get rid of this guy? <laughs> you know, it, it, it took marriage to get him out of the house. I'm, I'm, you know, his, his wife solved the problem for me. We still had to pack the kid up, you know, and, and move it. And now I'm staying in his house <laughs> for an indefinite period of time, which I hope is not going to be too much longer. As soon as they get the paperwork done, then I can move in. But it's that ability to make that faith commitment to another person that says, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to commit myself to you. Now, some of you have committed yourselves in that way and have only gotten hurt. My advice to you is don't withdraw and say, I'm not going to do that again. You know, the best way for Satan to instill fear into your life is for you to have a bad experience and then withdraw uh, because of that, because you don't want to get hurt again. You see, that's the downside of love. The downside of love means... You're going to get hurt. It's risky. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a low-budget movie that came out called Love Story. Anybody remember that? Okay, some of you remember it. If you don't remember it, you're not losing anything out of it. Um, but there was this, you know, they had this little, you know, you know tagline, you know, on the post. It says, love means never having to say you're sorry. And... That's probably the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> if you're not saying you're sorry once in a while, you, you're, you're, you're missing something. You're, you're going to get payback eventually. <laughs> Love one another. Thirdly, allow Christ's peace to rule in your heart. Do you really know what it means to have the peace of God that passes human understanding? Well, if it passes human understanding, how can I comprehend it? Well, it's the kind of a thing that you know, but you can't really put words to it. It's just there. You, you feel it. You sense it. When you're in a crisis, you don't lose it. Uh, when things go wrong with your family or your kids, yeah, you get concerned. You get You worry. But somehow you get through it. Even though you don't feel it, even though you might be feeling the storm, you're feeling the turmoil, you may be feeling the hurt, 
but somehow or another, you get through it. There used to be a missionary in the Assemblies of God. His favorite saying is, you're going to make it. You're not going to look like much when you get there, but you'll make it. <laughs> Brother Greenaway, uh, I believe was his name. The peace of Christ does not always mean that you live in a state of euphoria 24-7. The peace of Christ means that, uh, well, let's put it in military terms. How do you win the peace in, the mil in, a, in a military campaign? You win the peace by fighting for the victory. So to have the peace of God in your life means that you're going to have to fight. Because you're not going to have peace by surrendering to the temptation. You're not going to have peace by surrendering to the circumstances. You're not going to have peace by giving in. You have to persevere. And it takes hard work. It means that you're going to get hurt. It means there's going to be casualties. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be disappointments. But somehow or another, you get through it. And you're a better person for it. Now, most of you probably know that I've, uh, physically, I've, I've had my battles. You know, when you've got to rely on somebody to get you up on the platform, you know, you're not, you're not what you used to be. Okay. Um, and there were times I had to confess, I didn't feel like I was really getting through it. Yeah. You know, and, and people were praying, and all of you were praying for me, and uh, it, it, it was a hard time. But I got through it. And I hopefully I'm a better person for it. I was uh, talking to my friends again in South Carolina um, and talking about um, preaching. Preaching is good. It's fun. It's nice to get up here. You know, you like to have people pay attention to me, you know. <laughs> Uh, you don't always get that. Um, but you know, and, and I know this, that preaching is not always the most effective method of communication. Uh, people forget what you say, which may be a good thing in some cases, but uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not the most effective. And what I'm taking away from Durham is uh, I have the image of a rock. Uh, there's a reason why Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. We know Peter is, is a rock. Now, Peter did not seem like a very stable type individual, emotionally speaking. Right? Tried to run off in the mouth, and when he did, he usually said the wrong thing. Uh, I've been there. I know what that's like, uh, even from the pulpit. <laughs> Um, but what is a rock? You think about what a rock is. A rock is stable. It's hard. It's unmovable. And it's silent. The old saying that actions speak louder than words is very true in the Christian experience. The life you live, the quiet life that you live as a Christian, is a great source of encouragement to someone who is going through a hard time in their life knowing that you went through it too, but you stayed stable. You stayed sure. You stayed firm in your foundation. Amen. 
Jesus talked about the man who built his house on the sand. Okay, you, you know you can't do that. Uh, on, on the southern shore of Long Island, there was a string of islands called Fire Island. And if you had the money, you could build a house on Fire Island. And these houses were built on stilts. And they would be like 20, 30 feet up in the air on these huge like telephone stilts. And occasionally kids with power saws would go along and cut them down. <laughs> um, but whenever there is a hurricane or a storm, you could just about guarantee there's going to be a few houses out there that are going to be on their side because the, the hurricane washes out the sand underneath it and the house collapses. And that's the way a lot of Christians are. They built their faith on sand, on good feelings, on some kind of emotional experience, but never really grounded in the word. And then finally, be thankful. Paul said, in all things, be, uh, give thanks unto God, which is, which is his will for our lives. There is always something to be thankful for. Did you wake up this morning? Are you still alive? I know people who went to bed and never woke up. Uh, fortunately, they, <laughs> in their case, they woke up in heaven. <laughs> you know, and that's a good thing. But if you woke up this morning, you can be thankful. Now, there are things in your life that are going to happen that don't seem like you want to be thankful for. But you can be thankful for the grace of God and the peace of God that passes all human understanding, that keeps... When it says when it keeps your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, it means it keeps you in that solid foundation. You see, when you have this together, that becomes, even though you don't say a word, your life is an example. That's what Paul says. You are a living epistle, known and read by all men. And that speaks louder than sermons. So if you don't get a chance to stand up behind the pulpit, if you don't get a chance to, you know, be in the spotlight, first of all, be thankful, okay? Uh, secondly, know that God is using your life in a unique way that you may not always be aware of. Your life is having an impact. Now let's go on to kingdom, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. In John chapter 12, verse 31 through 33, now is the time of judgment on this world. Now is the prince of this world will be given and be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up uh, from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. And he said this to show what kind of death that he was going to die. Now that applied not only at his crucifixion, but it applies today. If we lift up Christ, people will be drawn in. I think the best definition for the kingdom is found in Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, <clears throat> the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from the darkness uh, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And they will be called oaks of righteousness, 
a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God doesn't want us to fill our churches with people as a primary motivation for being here. Our motivation rather should be to fill people with the spirit of God and let God fill the building. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team uh, to go ahead and come up, and I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Shane to bring it home. But I want to read uh, a verse from a hymn written by Charles Wesley. Uh, just one verse, very short. He wrote this shortly after he came to Christ. And the hymn is called, And Can It Be? This was mandatory for us to sing at graduation when I was at Southeastern uh, because the president, Cyril Homer, that was, happened to be his favorite hymn. And if you're the president, you get what you want. <laughs> but in verse 4, it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My, <clears throat> my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Father, we thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. We thank you once again for the moving of your Holy Spirit. And I give this time over to you, Lord, to touch people's lives, to minister to the need. And I thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. It's so critical that we recognize the importance of what it is that we do as a community. That we are building towards something. What Pastor Bill did so well for us is show us how brokenness is resolved through this incessant desire that we have to love one another. That we're working towards his purpose to build his kingdom. To see his purposes accomplished. And sometimes when we have been wounded, sometimes when we're carrying around the brokenness of our own experiences, it can sort of push out what it is that is meant in these scriptures for us to participate in. And that is God's work of reconciliation and love. That there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. In our culture, that might sound, there's no longer male or female. There's no longer black or white, Arab or Christian. That God's purpose is to bring them all together in him. That Christ is the unifier. That when we confess Christ, we become something completely different. And I wonder sometimes if we are still holding on to that old life just a little too hard. Our right to hold on to an offense. Our right to exclude some from the kingdom while including others that look and smell like us. You see, the gospel's for everyone or it's for no one. And that's really what Paul's trying to drive here. 
This is illustrated pretty powerful to me as I was hearing Pastor Bill. I couldn't help but be brought back to this story as David Wilkerson was ministering in the streets of New York and trying to touch the gang members. Nikki Cruz and the others, and maybe you've read some of this in the cross and the switchblade. But he's calling gang members, the woes that seemingly in that particular community were the furthest away from Christ that they could possibly be. They carried knives and guns and weapons. And even the wrong conversation or the wrong look could mean your death. But this farm boy feels a call to go and to reconcile even those that are the furthest away from Jesus that he could possibly imagine to God. One day he shows up and he's having a conversation with one of these gang members. And the gang member says to him, shut up. I don't want to hear that noise. Don't you know that I can cut you into a thousand pieces? The knife pulled out, ready to wield. And I love Wilkerson's response. You can cut me if you want with a thousand pieces, but every one of those pieces would cry out to you that I love you and so does Christ. It was too much love for that gang member to stay distant. He made Christ Lord. It's love. Who have you been excluding from the kingdom because of an offense that you've been walking through? Who have you excluded from the kingdom because you haven't wanted to cross the street to speak to? Who have you excluded from the kingdom that desperately needs to hear that God loves him? Because in God's world, there is no one that's beyond his grace. Not the Taliban. Not the wicked person that wounded you. That we all have access to that grace. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's the beauty of what this passage is calling us to. It's that kind of life. I wonder if you could just pray with me for a moment because I believe that God is trying to use the words that Pastor Bill spoke so powerfully to us to penetrate the spaces in our own hearts where there are still gaps, where the gospel is yet to reach us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work supernaturally in this moment and that you would draw us into the mystery of that love that, yes, covers a multitude of sins, but also causes us to know that we are recipients of this grace, and because we have received it, we ought to give it. That we are to be a culture of forgiveness. That we are to allow Christ's lordship to reign supreme, and there's nothing that's more important that we value than that. I pray, Lord, that we would see that so plain here and now in the name of Jesus. Perhaps you have come here today heavy in heart and the words have penetrated deep into your soul and you know that you're not right where you need to be with the Lord. Well, today is your day. God wants to meet you. If you're harboring unforgiveness, the Lord wants to meet you. If you're harboring vengeance in your own heart, the Lord wants to meet you. 
If you are dealing with fear about what it means to go beyond the place of your comfort zone, God wants to meet you. This is your moment. Heavenly Father, I pray that supernaturally that you would just begin to work and you'll draw us all into your grace afresh and anew and that you would make us alive in Christ. Today, if you find yourself distant from the Lord, there's an opportunity for you to know Christ, to confess him as Lord, to receive his work for yourself. If that's you, I invite you to pray this prayer along with me. Heavenly Father, I need your grace. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for harboring bitterness in my own heart and set me free. Forgive me for not being a unifier. Forgive me for laying claim to my own rights when your kingdom is most important. I invite you to be Lord of my life in the name of Jesus. Now in this atmosphere where we have found reconciliation,